0: If you're looking for cheap chills this Halloween season, the Notorious Bakersfield Halloween Tour is for you. This self-paced audio driving tour will take you to crime scene locations in southwest Bakersfield. For $20, you and your friends will learn about this town's most disturbing crimes while you're at the actual location. To purchase this year's Halloween tour, Go to NotoriousBakersfield.com and click the Halloween tour link. Or visit the Notorious Bakersfield social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Due to graphic subject matter, this tour is recommended for adults only. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. This past Saturday, I went to George MacArthur's Strange Museum of Oddities and Wonders. It's a fascinating collection George the Giant has. It's open every Friday and Saturday for the rest of October. Admission is $7 per person. If you're looking for something to do after taking the Notorious Bakersfield Halloween tour, head over to George the Giant's Museum. He has a pretty fascinating collection of weird and creepy artifacts. This year it's located at 7104 Golden State Highway. Go check it out. Now, an update on a past episode. Remember Melee at Juvenile Court? I covered the story back in May of this year. I was recently contacted by a family member of Mr. William Rigdon, Um, He was the bystander in court who wrestled Walter Riley, the gunman. While Mr. Rigdon grappled with Walter Riley from behind, Riley fired the gun into his own chest. The bullet passed through Riley's chest, exited his back, and entered Mr. Rigdon's chest. Walter Riley died. However, Mr. Rigdon survived his injuries and kept the bullet as a memento. This relative of Mr. Rigdon sent me a picture of that very bullet, the bullet that killed Walter Riley and nearly killed Mr. Rigdon. I posted these pictures on the Notorious Bakersfield Facebook page, so head on over there and check it out. It's pretty fascinating. About 1.30 in the afternoon of Thursday, May eighteenth, 1972, Marjorie Menear was busy cleaning out a closet at her house at 5817 Olive Drive. The phone rang. Marjorie picked it up. A man in a friendly tone told her he was a stockbroker and he was going to stop by her house to drop off some paperwork for her husband. Marjorie said that would be fine. She'd be home. A few minutes later, less than 15 minutes, the doorbell rang. Marjorie answered the door. Standing on the doorstep was a well-dressed man in his early to mid-thirties. He was wearing a dark suit and carrying a briefcase. When she asked for the paperwork, the man reached into the briefcase and pulled out a pistol. Startled, Marjorie jumped back. The man pointed the gun directly at her and walked into the house. He immediately told Marjorie to turn around, to not look at him. The man pulled Marjorie's hands behind her back and bound her wrists. Instinctively, Marjorie looked over her shoulder. The man struck her on her forehead, telling her again not to look at him. She apologized for disobeying him. At this point, the man took some bed linens and ripped them apart. He blindfolded Marjorie. He told her he wouldn't hurt her if she did exactly as he told her. She promised him she would. The man whisked Marjorie out of her Olive Drive house and into the back seat of a waiting vehicle. This is Kidnapped from Olive Drive. Bob Weedell, the loan officer at the Oildell branch of the Bank of America was sitting at his desk at about 2 p.m. Thursday, May 18, 1972. Wiedel was reviewing some documents when the phone on his desk rang. It was the bank receptionist telling him he had an important call on hold. Wiedel answered the phone. The caller asked to speak to Glenn Menear, the Bank of America branch manager. Wiedel told the caller that Mr. Menear... Was in an important meeting and wasn't available to take phone calls. Caller spoke slowly and deliberately. Do not call the cops. Tell Glenn Meniere that his wife has been kidnapped. She's being held for $50,000 ransom. This should be in denominations of five, 10, and $20 bills. Wait by the phone for another call with further instructions. Bob Whedell hung up the phone, thinking this was a prank, but he should inform Glenn Menear. Whedell knocked on Mr. Menear's office door before opening it. He stuck his head in, apologized for interrupting, and asked to speak with the manager in private. Two men went to a secluded area of the bank. Glenn Menear also suspected it to be a prank. He picked up a phone sitting on a nearby desk and called his home. It rang and rang, and nobody answered. The two men decided that Menear should go home right away to check on his wife, to see if there was anything out of the ordinary at his house. Menear rushed out of the North Chester Bank to his Olive Drive house. When he entered, he called out for his wife. He took a quick look around. He could tell right away that something wasn't right. Things were out of place, something his wife would not have done. Menear called Bob Woodell at the bank. He said he wasn't 100% certain Marjorie had been kidnapped, but it looked like she very well may have been. The two decided that their next move would be to call law enforcement, even though that was a no-no, according to the kidnappers. The bank manager's next call was to the Kern County Sheriff's Office to explain the situation. But don't come to his house, and don't go to the bank. He'd meet deputies at a cafe in Oildale. He frequented this cafe often and could use their phone to stay in communication with the bank. At 3.50 p.m., the kidnappers called Bob Weedell at the bank a second time. They asked if the money was ready. It was not. Due to them wanting small bills, more time was needed to gather that kind of money. The kidnappers gave them 30 more minutes to secure the cash. The voice over the phone told Waddell to go to the payphone in the lobby of the Bakersfield Inn on Union Avenue. He'd call that phone to give Wedell his next set of instructions. Waddell called Glenn Manier at the cafe to inform his boss about this latest phone call. Since this case involved both a kidnapping and bank robbery, Kern County Sheriff Charlie Dodge brought in the FBI. Bob Whedell went to the Bakersfield Inn, and he got that phone call. The kidnappers instructed Widell to look for a note in a phone booth at the service station at Oak and California Avenue, where the AMPM is located today. That note told Whedell to go to a phone booth at a service station near 7 Standard Road and Highway 99. Now, this is something you'd see in the movies or something. Bob Widell did just as he was told. He went to that payphone just north of Bakersfield. The note there directed him to leave the ransom in an orchard nearby, west of Highway 99 off of 7 Standard Road. Evidently, and I'm not sure how, but Wedell was in communication with the Kern County Sheriff's officials the entire time, letting them know where he was going after each stop. When officials got word to where the drop was, the teams of sheriff's deputies and FBI agents went to the vicinity of Seven Standard Road and Highway 99. A helicopter was even pressed into action. Wiedel drove to the orchard he was supposed to. He left a brown paper bag. Inside this bag was a bank bag with $50,000 cash in small bills. Even though law enforcement was crawling all over this area, including a helicopter, the kidnappers were able to grab the paper bag containing the ransom without being apprehended. In the meantime, A phone call was received at the Bank of America branch on North Chester. The voice on the phone told a bank employee that Marjorie Manier, the hostage, could be found in a box in an orchard near Famoso Dragstrip. Before authorities could reach that location, Marjorie Manier freed herself from the box and walked to a nearby farmhouse. Surprisingly, after over four hours of being held captive, Miss Manier was in relatively good condition. The only physical injury she suffered was a small cut on her forehead from when she was struck by her captor in the beginning of this ordeal. I'm sure you're wondering why law enforcement wasn't able to apprehend the kidnappers when they retrieved the ransom. Sheriff Charlie Dodge explained that even though there were teams of deputies and FBI agents in the area, none were able to get close to the location of the drop. At that point, Marjorie Minear was still being held hostage. Only her captors knew where she was. As long as police didn't know her whereabouts. They had to be very cautious. They couldn't let the kidnappers know that law enforcement had been notified, one of the demands of the kidnappers. Sheriff Dodge also praised the media. News reporters were aware of this situation, but the sheriff asked them to withhold reporting on it until the kidnapping victim was found. And the news media honored that request. As I said, besides the cut on her forehead, Marjorie Menear was mostly unharmed. The following day, she and her husband sat down with a reporter from the Bakersfield, Californian. Marjorie recounted how she was captured in her house, how the man struck her when she looked at him. She said there were two men who drove her around Bakersfield for four hours while the ransom money was being obtained. She remained bound and blindfolded on the floorboard in the back seat of the vehicle. Marjorie claimed the only time she feared for her life was in the very beginning, when she was first kidnapped. Marjorie Manier only briefly saw the one captor when she answered her door, so she was unable to get a physical description of either man. She did describe one man as having a gruff-sounding voice, while the other man had a pleasant, soothing voice. At one point during her captivity, the men gave her a sip of soft drink. On June 1st, 1972, less than two weeks after the kidnapping of Marjorie Manier, the Kern County Grand Jury indicted a Thousand Oaks bartender for the crime. His name was Robert Carlton Highfield. At the time of the Bakersfield kidnapping, Highfield was out on bail for a similar crime in Visalia. He and three other men were charged with kidnapping a nine-year-old girl. She was the daughter of a prominent car dealer. Now, here's an odd twist to the story. On June 15th, while Highfield was sitting in jail, an almost identical crime occurred in Buttonwillow. A banker's wife and daughter were kidnapped for ransom in that small Kern County town. Two suspects were apprehended in that case and evidently didn't have any connection to this Oildell case. I guess it was the thing to do in 1972. Almost a month after being arrested for Marjorie Meniere's kidnapping, the charges against Robert Carlton Highfield were dropped. Two independent witnesses with no connection to the accused criminal claimed he was in Visalia when Marjorie Meniere was kidnapped. The Kern County D.A. had no choice but to dismiss the complaint against Highfield. Robert Carlton Highfield did go on trial for the Visalia kidnapping case. He and his three co-defendants were found guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison, but it looks like he was eventually paroled. He died in December 2020. I know you're wondering like I am, what happened to that ransom money? the $50,000 paid for Marjorie Meniere's release. It doesn't appear any other suspects were ever charged or arrested with this crime. And evidently, somebody became $50,000 richer. So who says crime doesn't pay? On a personal note, this Bank of America branch is where I opened my first savings account. I remember walking into this bank with my mom and opening this account. I remember the teller writing in my bank book my deposit and balances. I'm certain my balance never rose above $5. Every time my mom and I would drive by this location, I'd always point out, my bank. Bank of America no longer has a branch at this location, but the building still stands. It's Address is 1700 North Chester, on the northeast corner of North Chester and Linda Vista. Thinking back, I remember opening the account, but I have no memory of ever closing it. So Bank of America probably owes me $5. Resources used for this story, the Bakersfield California, the Tulare Advance Register, and findagrave.com. I'm Robert Peterson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, with another Notorious Bakersfield story. Have a good week.